And I don't know how many of you have watched the news this week, but you may recognize this man. This is a Methodist minister who was the chairman, until this week at least, of the Co-op Bank. And I was interested in this story because a couple of years ago I I worked for the Co-op Bank uh, for a short time. And the Co-op Bank has been under such scrutiny recently uh, due to the poor state, of course, of its finances. And one of the points raised was the inexperience of the people on the board, one of which was Reverend Flowers. And he was uh, the chairman of the co-op board and a man in a high place. And as a minister of the Methodist Church, he claims to be a Christian. But he was investigated by the Mail on Sunday and was found to be dealing in drugs in Leeds, having also been found to have a very questionable uh, sexual past, and allegedly having some dodgy dealings with finances with a charity. And the Methodist website have said... We expect high standards of our ministers and we have procedures in place for when ministers fail to meet those standards. Now I'm not here to highlight this guy and to point the finger necessarily at him. This is a tragedy. And I agree with the Methodist website when they say that we need to pray for this man. But here's an extreme example of a person who is the opposite to what Paul is asking us to do in the letter to the Philippians, where he tells us to shine like stars in the sky. Last week, Tim took us through the perfect example of one who shined like a star. As we looked at Jesus in chapter 2, we were reminded, or at least I was reminded, about what he told us in John chapter 8, verse 12, and what uh, Pippa mentioned in her verse this morning, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And we were reminded too, how in order to follow his example, we must first follow him as our Lord. And the next passage assumes that you are following him as your king. And it follows on quite nicely actually from the baptisms this morning. The baptisms is a good way of showing uh, to non-Christians what Jesus has done and how he's impacted our lives. And this is a good message following that for us as believers in how we, having been baptised, shine like stars in the sky. And it echoes what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and what Stuart read earlier. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We must take this in the context of the humility passage we've just read. Paul doesn't tell us to shine like stars so that everyone can see how great we are. We do it that they may praise our Father in heaven. Before uh, Paula and I had children, and we used to be able to go out a lot in the evenings... (laughs) We used to go down uh, to the beach, um, a beach called Wembury Beach, and we'd often go down there in the night because it was great to hear the waves and see the stars when all the tourists had gone home. And both of us would be there, and we were amazed at the, on a clear night at how amazing these stars were. 
And we were just amazed as we heard the waves crashing against the rocks and all, and all that wonder and beauty around us. But it was the stars in the sky that we could see clearly. And both of us would sometimes turn to one another and say, Wow, how awesome is God? How awesome is God? In Psalm 147, verse 7, it says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them by name. How awesome is our God? And that's what people should be doing with us. Rather than saying, how amazing is that person? They should look at your life and say, wow, how awesome is God? I knew that person before they were a Christian, and they're not the same. How, what is that? How amazing is God? Look at what God has done. <clears throat> the elders are reading a book at the moment called Reverberation. And there's a really good story in there that I'll read to you. And it tells of two preachers. A group of American Christians in the 19th century planned a visit to London for a week. Their friends, excited for the opportunity, encouraged them to go and hear two of London's most famous preachers and bring back a report. On Sunday morning after their arrival, the Americans attended Joseph Parker's church. They discovered that his reputation for eloquent oratory was well deserved. One exclaimed after the service, I do declare that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever there was. Well, the group wanted to return in the evening to hear Parker again, but they remembered that their friends would ask them about another preacher named Charles Spurgeon. So on Sunday evening, they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was preaching. The group was not prepared for what they heard. And as they departed, one of them spoke up. I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest saviour, if ever there was. We shine like stars in the sky by bringing glory to God, so that the world can see how great a saviour Jesus Christ is. We shine the light so they can see the light of the world, Jesus Christ, don't we? And Paul takes us through this, or how we do this, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. It's pages uh, 100, no, sorry, 1,179 in the church Bibles, and page 1,824 in the large print ones. <clears throat> First of all, we see that shining like stars means being submissive to God's will. Look at verse 12. Paul starts with the word, therefore. And this links to what has been said before about us following Christ's example of humility after worshipping him as our Lord. Therefore, he says, as you have always obeyed. As you have always obeyed. Being submissive uh, to God means obedience. Being submissive to God's will, will requires obedience. And this is linked into verse 8 of this chapter where we're told how Christ became obedient, didn't he? We read he was obedient even to death, even the death of the cross. And the Philippians were obedient whether or not Paul was there with them. He says, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. The Philippians obeyed God not, uh, not because of Paul, but because they loved God. 
And we should be obedient not just because mum or dad tells us to do something. We should be obedient not because the elders have suggested it's a good idea. We shouldn't be obedient because someone's watching me. We should be obedient because we love God and we follow his example. They obey much more in Paul's absence because when he is not there and they obey, he knows they are not doing it for his own approval. I was once told a story of a child in our church where we've come from and his mum and dad wanted him to stand up during the songs. And he turned around to them one time and he said, I'm standing up on the outside, but inside, I'm sitting down. (laughs) Which is amazing coming from a child, isn't it? But we can be like that, can't we, sometimes? We can just obey God, perhaps externally, but inside, we can be railing against God. No, we should obey because we love Jesus. Submitting to God's will requires obedience. Paul continues, As you have always obeyed, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Being submissive to God's will requires hard work. We keep on needing uh, to, to work out our salvation, but we need to pause here to clarify an important truth. You see, in the Bible, salvation is a big word, and it has lots of meaning. And in fact, there are three uh, different parts to the word salvation. The first part of salvation is what's known as justification. That's the past tense of salvation. We we have been saved, or we are saved. This part of salvation means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he gave us his righteousness. It was a work solely of God, not of us. God took our sins and gave us his righteousness. And he gives us a position of righteousness. When God sees us, he sees us as righteous, because God has given us that as a gift. That's what Tim was saying this morning. We were dead. We couldn't do anything, but in the grace of God, he gives us salvation. It's not of works, lest any man can boast. That's justification. That's not what Paul's talking about here. We don't work out our justification. It's done already by Jesus on the cross. Uh, Praise him for that. The second part of salvation is the present tense. It's called sanctification, or we are being saved. You might read that in some places in scripture. And this part of salvation means that God is working in us to make us more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means, becoming holy. And the third um, uh, part of salvation is a future tense, glorification. We will be saved. And this is when we'll be in heaven. Uh, When Jesus returns, we will receive glorified bodies. We'll be with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. That's a future thing. What Paul's talking about here is that second part of salvation, the sanctification. It's a progressive work that God is doing, making us more like Christ. And it's hard work, isn't it? Because we know that although we're in a position of perfection, we know we're not really perfect yet. God is working out that in us, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Paul says here, work out your salvation. Work it out. Another way of describing it that I was thinking about this week, I'm a father of three children, and I have that position of being a father. No matter how good or bad a dad I am, I'm I'm my three children's father. I could be a good one or a bad one, but I have that position as their father, don't I? 
But I need to work at being a better father. I need to work at, at, their, at their upbringing. It's hard work being a dad. It's hard work being a Christian. And both we do with fear and trembling. And Paul is telling us to work out our salvation in becoming more like Christ. And we do so with fear and trembling. And this fear isn't of losing our salvation, but it's working to becoming more like Christ with care and consideration. We work out our salvation more effectively when we consider what Christ has done for us to secure our salvation. You know, when you're, you're wavering in your, in your Christian life and perhaps you're holding back a little bit, it can spur us on when we think about what Jesus has done for us and we live our lives in thanksgiving for him. We work out our salvation more effectively when we consider and study how great our God is. We're more effective when we consider how it's our light that shows Jesus to a dying world. We serve God more effectively when we realize that we are weak and feeble and we need God so much. We work more effectively when we realize the dangers of how vulnerable we are as a church to disunity and poor testimony. That's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. <clears throat> it's thinking about those things and thinking, yeah, I, I, I need to live for Jesus. I need to live for Christ. When you consider those things. Being submissive to God's will is hard work. And then being submissive to God's will <clears throat> is actually a work of God himself. Look at what Paul uh, goes on to say in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Now this may be confusing to you. There seems to be a tension here, doesn't there? Between us working out our salvation and God working in and through us. But this shouldn't concern us. This should actually help us. You see, there's a distinction in the Bible between the role that God has to play and the obedience that we have to have. We cannot use the fact that God is a sovereign God as an excuse for not obeying the scriptures because it's God's sovereignty, not ours. We are just to follow the commands that are given to us. At the same time, the sovereignty of God should be a great comfort to us. On my own, I cannot work out my salvation. I cannot become more like Jesus because I am weak. I am a pathetic and struggling sinful man. But with God working in me, I can obey and do so with confidence and know that it's done with reason and purpose. But it should also stop me from boasting that I'm becoming more like Christ because it makes me realize that it's God's work. And that's how we shine like stars, isn't it? Because they see us and they see the work of God. They don't say how great you are, how great is our saviour, is what they say. We shine like stars in the sky. It's hard work to be obedient to God's will, but we thank him that he is with us in his spirit so that we can obey. Secondly, we see that shining like stars means being accepting of God's will, being accepting of it. God is at work in us at our salvation 
And he is working in you to fulfill his good purposes. And that happens to us as we are working out our salvation. All that happens is part of his will. Everything, all the things that happen are part of God's sovereign will and plan. And if we look at things this way, we say this is a work of God. God is at work in this. We can obey verse 14, which says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? Because everything that happens is part of God's will for our lives. It's for his good purposes. Do you really believe that's true? Do you really believe it, that God is at work in all things in your life? We heard a great testimony this morning from Jacob, didn't we? How even cancer can be used to bring people to Christ. God is at work in all things in his sovereign will. And therefore, we shouldn't grumble or argue. Now, my children have really struggled with me being in in this verse this week. (laughs) Because I've made them quote it back at me a number of times. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And I'll say something here to uh, the children. Because this is important to remember. That sometimes, mums and dads, and teachers, and coaches, and all those kinds of people that are in charge... Uh, sometimes they ask you to do things that really you don't want to do. Do you ever find that, children? Do your mums and dads ever ask you to do things that you don't want to do? Well, that even happens to us adults as well, you know. But we should obey, the Bible says, without grumbling and without arguing. And you can shake your fist, Jacob, all you want, but that's what the Bible says uh, that we are to do. So when you're asked to tidy your room... We are to do it without grumbling or complaining. Or if you're told you're not allowed to ride your bike or not allowed to play that game, we should accept without grumbling and without arguing. That's what God's word is telling us this evening. But there is a strong reference here to the children of Israel. If you remember in the Old Testament, they grumbled, didn't they, against Moses constantly. A good chapter, just to read outside of this, if you want to look for an example, is Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, where the word grumble appears at least five times. We want to go back to Egypt, they would say. You've killed us all. Why did you bring us here to die of thirst? Well, the children of Israel were supposed to shine like stars in the sky, to show God's glory to the world, so that the world might turn to him. But verse 15 refers to the fact that the children of Israel did not fulfill that task. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses sings a song to Israel. And it's a song of warning and lament. Because he realized that he was about to die. And he says in chapter 31, basically, if, I'm gonna die, if, I, if they haven't obeyed God while I'm here... What on earth are they going to do when I've gone? And he sings this song of warning to them. It begins with a proclamation of the greatness of God. And then he gets to verse 5 and says this about Israel. They are a corrupt. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. And Paul, referring to this in Philippians, directly links it to the grumbling that they had done. He says, do not grumble, do everything without grumbling and complaining and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
And notice the difference here between the children of Israel and the church. Deuteronomy says that they are not children of God, but we are children of God. They were shamed, and we are without fault. They are a warped and crooked generation, but we are in one, not part of one. And the church has been made this way by Christ. He makes us children of God. He makes us without fault. He calls us out of being a, out of a warped and crooked generation. And Paul goes on to say at the end of 15, uh, verse 15 in Philippians 2, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Israel was supposed to be the stars, but they had failed. And the church, because we have Christ in us, are now the stars and fulfill that role that Israel was supposed to play. Now I recognize that it is a struggle to live in a warped and crooked generation. And sometimes we can even be part of that crooked and perverse generation. As we live amongst them, we can do things and be involved in their lives in ways that are are just, just not right. And we need to ensure that we are shining like stars by keeping apart from the dark things that the world does. We need to be doing that, to be shining like stars. But how often we grumble and argue, don't we? Amongst each other, to each other, even to God. Sometimes we get ill, don't we? It is part of God's will. Do not grumble and argue. We have jobs sometimes that we don't enjoy. It is part of God's will that you are there. Do not grumble or argue. Perhaps you're not sure about what the future holds this month, this year, or you know, for as long as you know. God is in control and is working his will out, so don't grumble and argue. Your family, perhaps, is falling apart all around you and you don't know what to do. God is in control. He's working his will out. Don't grumble and argue. Well, what should we be doing instead? Look at verse 16. It says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Israel grumbled and argued when they were in the wilderness about things such as lack of food, lack of water, telling Moses that they were going to die. But Israel had this promise, didn't they? This promise from God given to Abraham, carried through to all of his children. A promise that they would become a nation whose numbers were more than the stars in the sky. He promised them a land that they could dwell in. And he promised them that they would be a blessing to all nations. They had God's word. He wasn't going to let them die. Not only that, they had the experience of God's power in fulfilling his word in miraculous ways, like when they came out of Egypt. Rather than grumble and argue, they should have remembered the promises that God had given them. They should have held firmly to the word of life to the word which was given to them by God, and so should we. When we grumble and argue, we forget what God has promised us in his word. He's promised us that we do have a future home in heaven that will never perish or fade or spoil. 
He has promised us that he is in control of all things and is working out all things for the good. He has promised us that he will supply all of our needs. He has promised us that he will never allow us to go through anything that without trusting in him we cannot cope with. He has promised us that we are completely forgiven of all of our sin and nothing that we can do can ever take us from his hand. Those are promises that are firmly in God's word. And we need to hold firmly to the word of life. Whenever we grumble and complain and argue with God, we forget and we let go and are not holding firm to the promises that God has given us in his word. And there are many, many, many more things. I could be here for the whole sermon giving you some of the promises of God and I would not even have enough time. There is so much that we can hold firm to in God's word, isn't there? So, so much. But we so often grumble and argue, don't we? So when you feel this week like grumbling and arguing about anything, from not being allowed to ride your bike to some of the big things in life, hold firm. Hold firm to those promises in God's word. The older version of the NIV uses the phrase, holding out. And whilst holding firm is more accurate, we do in fact hold out God's word to others as we shine like stars. We are living words, aren't we? We shine like stars in the sky by accepting God's will for our life without grumbling and arguing. And finally, we shine like stars by making sacrifices for God's word. Look at verses Uh, 16, or the end of 16 to 18. I'm sure we understand and recognize, as I've said, that the Christian life is hard work. It's a tough walk. It involves making sacrifice. And Paul the Apostle sacrificed more than most for the cause of Christ. But it was worth it for him when he saw churches like the one in Philippi shining as stars in the world. We see, first of all, that sacrifice encourages godly leaders. Look at the end of verse 16. And then, when he sees them shining like stars in the sky, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. When Paul uses uh, this word boast here, he's not using uh, the term boast as in he's showing off. Look at what I've done in Philippi, aren't I a great guy? He's not saying that at all. Another word might be rejoice. What he's saying is that the the, the effort that he's made in Philippi is worth it when he sees them shining like stars. And this is true of all people in any kind of leadership, whether it be parents of children, whether it be elders, whether it be youth workers, grandparents, any position of, of leadership or authority, you know it's worth it when you see the impact on people's lives. We saw that this morning, didn't we? A wonderful example of the baptisms. Everyone who was baptised was able to say of somebody in leadership in some way that had an impact on their life. And boy, I can tell you, when you looked around the faces of people here, you knew that they thought all that effort was worth it, wasn't it? And I know uh, people we've worked with when we were in Ivy Bridge for many, many years. And when me and Paula see them now... Uh, Young people that are now walking with God, serving God in different ways, and they were just a pain in the neck sometimes. And we came home some Friday nights and thought, was it it, it even worth doing that tonight? 
over the years, we know that it was worth the while because we see what God has done in their life. When we make sacrifices, we know that it's worth it. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Sacrifice um, encourages godly leaders. When you sacrifice for Christ, those people that have had an impact on your life are encouraged. They are encouraged. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. And Paul needed this encouragement. He was in prison at the time of writing this, but he also, um, uh, he, but he was encouraged, wasn't he, by what they had done. But he also recognized the sacrifices of the church in Philippi as well as his own. We see here that sacrifice looks to others above ourselves. Look at verses, uh, verse 17 and 18. Paul says, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your faith, coming from your faith. Paul is saying here that he is being poured out as a sacrifice. This is how he views his imprisonment. He's being poured out. But he's saying he's being poured out like a drink offering. And he's using the uh, imagery of animal sacrifice that people, both pagan and Jew, in the church in Philippi would understand. You see, the, the drink offering was the topping off of a sacrifice. So you'd have the, the main uh, meat offering, and the drink offering was poured on top as, as the topping off of the sacrifice. It was never the main sacrifice. It was the, the topping off. It was like uh, when you sprinkle a flake on a trifle or something. You know, it's, not, you know, it's just, it's the, it's just the, t- the topping, isn't it? Well, that's what the, the drink offering uh, w- was like. And Paul's saying he's not the main sacrifice. Paul's saying he's the drink offering. But he's the drink offering, he says, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. In his humility, he is saying that the offering of sacrifice and service that the Philippians are making, are giving to God, is the greater offering. He is just the drink offering. Both Paul and the Philippians were suffering for their faith. They were suffering at the hands of a Roman Empire that was trying to get rid of them, that was uh, persecuting them often, and they, they suffered for their faith. But Paul sees their sacrifice as the greater sacrifice. What an example of shining like a star in the context of humility here. He is more concerned about the suffering of others than himself. He's saying, I'm just, I'm just the topping. Look at what you've done. Your sacrifice is amazing. We saw an example of this uh, this week. Uh, Paula has some friends that are serving God uh, uh, in, in the Philippines with New Tribes Mission. And she got a message this week on Facebook, and I'll read you what the message says, because it was a real uh, amazing example of, of, of how this works. Uh, they say, thank you to all those who have been praying and donating money to the dear people of the Philippines, many of whom are suffering greatly since the typhoon. Since we arrived back last week, we have been home here on the island of Palawan, helping our new tribe's pilots with getting relief to the, to the further out islands where help is much harder to get to than the main coastal areas. Uh, she says um, that they showed a photo and she says it was from uh, one of the helicopter pilots uh, in a place that until yesterday had received no help. They had been eating seaweed to stay alive. It was heartbreaking. However, in the midst of such sadness, I got a text yesterday from some of the believers in the village where we live telling me they wanted to send a bag of clothes 
to those who are much worse off than they are right now. I was totally humbled knowing how little they have, and yet to see their heart to want to give and help was light and hope in the midst of such darkness. I thank God for the privilege we have as a body of Christ around the world to come together to help those in great need. We pray God will use it all for his great name's sake and that the gospel will have open doors to places that before were not open. These people who, were, who the clothes were really all they had, realized that the sacrifice that the others were making they, they, was even greater and they gave what they had to others in need. They, only had, they didn't have much more than those clothes and yet they gave them to the believers, uh, to others that, that had need. That's what Paul was saying here. We look at the the needs of others above ourselves. We realize, yes, we might be making sacrifices, but we want to help others in their sacrifice too. But Paul also rejoiced in his and their sacrifice. And this is where he finishes, finishes this passage. He says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Sacrifice brings joy to the giver and to other Christians. Paul's joy is in his sacrifice and in their sacrifice. This is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith, isn't it? That there is great joy in sacrifice. It doesn't make sense to to many, does it? But the Bible tells us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we see Christians in the Philippines giving all they have to help others. And we too should be willing to make sacrifices to God. We should be sacrificing our money. We always have enough money for what we want to do, don't we? But not enough for God's work sometimes. Or not enough for the needs of others. We should be sacrificing our time. Again, we have enough time for what we want to do, don't we? But all of our time is God's time. We have loads of time for other things in our life, but do you have time to sacrifice to prayer? Time to sacrifice for serving God in the needs of the church in various ways? We should be even sacrificing our praise, singing out to God, even when we don't feel like doing so. But until we make the sacrifice, we will never know the joy of doing so. Paul had joy in his sacrifice. If he hadn't made the sacrifice, he wouldn't have that joy, would he? And that joy was both to him and to the believers in Philippi and the other way around too. The sacrifice always looks too much, doesn't it, before we do it. Faith always looks too hard before we actually take that step of faith. But God blesses us once we do. There is great joy in sacrifice. But until we make those sacrifices for God, we will never know the joy of doing them. So I ask you the question, are you shining like stars in the sky? Are you submitting to God's will? Are you accepting God's will in your life without grumbling or arguing? And are you sacrificing for the glory of God? And when we do these things, it will cause people to wonder. Not wonder at you, but at the God who is making you into his image. You will be the light of the world that shows Jesus to others. 
And like when Paula and I saw uh, the stars in the sky at the beach, they will say, not how amazing are you, but they will say, wow, what an awesome God, what an awesome Savior. Well, our final song tells us of the treasure that we have in our hearts that we need to share with the world. So let's stand together and sing, we have this treasure from the Lord our God. <clears throat>